Last week, we started by asking, what is worship? This week, the question is, what is love? In our passage, Paul is going to give us a picture of genuine love. But first, let's remember just for a moment where we are in the letter to the Romans. We are in a section that deals with living the gospel. Last week, we looked at the heading for this whole section. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul said, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Romans chapters 12 to 15 lay out our response to God's mercy. Not a way for us to earn his mercy, but our response to the mercy he has shown us in Jesus Christ. Through faith in Christ's substitutionary sacrifice, we are forgiven by God. We're justified in God's sight. We're reconciled to God set free from sin's power, adopted as God's children, and made heirs of his glory. And now, Paul tells us, in view of all that mercy piled on mercy, we're to offer our whole selves to him as worship. Our lives are to be lives of worship all the time. And last week, Paul told us the way to do that. It's through the lifelong process of renewing our minds, conforming our thinking and our outlook to God's will, then living it out. And what we're going to look at this morning is a continuation of that. It's about living out our worship of God through genuine love. So if you haven't already turned there, turn with me to Romans chapter 12. In the Church Bible, that's page 1139, or in the large print, 1762. Romans chapter 12, and I'll read verses 9 down to verse 21. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, 
As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is God's word. And on a first reading, it seems Paul is taking a machine gun approach here, just firing off random commands in all directions. But actually, this passage is a description of genuine love. It shows us what genuine love looks like. And this passage is organized around two commands Paul gives. They could just as easily be translated as statements. In the first half of the passage, genuine love hates what is evil and clings to what is good. And in the second half, genuine love is not overcome by evil, but overcomes evil with good. So first, in verses 9 to 16, genuine love hates what is evil and clings to what is good. I've used the term genuine love. The NIV translates it as sincere love. And the point is, not all that goes by the name love really is love. True love, Paul says, involves hating what is evil and clinging to what is good. Would you say that's the definition of love most people operate with today? Just a couple of weeks ago, Jimmy Carter, who's a former American president and a member of a Baptist church, said that true Christian love will refuse to discriminate against certain lifestyle choices. What he meant was, churches should not try to forbid their members from certain kinds of sexual behavior. Why? Because it's not loving to tell people they shouldn't do what they really want to do. That's what Jimmy Carter thinks. But does that fit with the definition of love we find in verse 9? Surely, according to verse 9, discrimination is exactly what's involved in true love. Surely we're being told genuine love does not just affirm every lifestyle choice. Genuine love says some choices are evil and therefore opposed to God's good, pleasing, and perfect will, and therefore harmful and destructive and to be avoided. On the other hand, genuine love recognizes that some choices are good, and therefore those are the things we're to choose. Of course, Genuine love discriminates. Not in the sense of shunning or persecuting people or looking down on anyone. But love discriminates in the sense of saying some things are wrong 
and other things are right. And the standard for that is God's Word. The standard for right and wrong is not whatever happens to be fashionable in our culture at this moment in time. It is not loving to tell everyone everything they're doing is okay all the time. That is insincere love. It might look like love, but it's not. True love says to those around us, God's will is good. Cling to it. Even if it doesn't make sense to you at this time in your life. True love says anything opposed to God's will is evil. No matter how much you want to do it. And those evil things are to be hated. They dishonor God and they will destroy you if you pursue them. Now, having got our attention with a pretty counter-cultural definition of love, now Paul gives us three examples of the good we are to cling to. In verses 10 to 11, he tells us, we demonstrate genuine love by building up the body for God's sake. In the verses just before this, the verses we looked at last week, Paul has compared the church fellowship to a body. A body where all the parts need one another. And all the parts are called to serve one another. So that picture should still be in our minds as we read verse 10, where Paul says, Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. The word love here is actually brotherly love, Philadelphia, which someone in America decided would be a good name for a city. When Paul talks about brotherly love, he means love among Christian brothers and sisters. This is love within the church fellowship. And he says we're to show our love by outdoing one another in showing honor. That's the best translation of the end of verse 10. We are to compete, not in trying to get honor for ourselves, but in showing honor to others. Competition for honor brings bitterness and disunity. Competition in showing honor builds the body up. It brings peace within the body. How could you and I get the competition started? Well, we could make a commitment, maybe once a week, to thank someone. Instead of pointing out what another person has failed to do, or how they messed up what they were trying to do, point out what they have done well. We say that about parenting. Catch your children doing something good. Let's do that in the church body as well. So if the sound was well balanced, let the people on the sound desk know that. If you were blessed by the music, let the musicians know. If someone read the Bible well, let them know. 
If your coffee this week didn't taste of washing up liquid, thank somebody for that. If your kids remembered something from Sunday school, anything at all, if they remembered they were at Sunday school, thank their teacher. A while ago I heard a preacher saying, we need to quit thanking people in church for doing things. They're supposed to do things. I think that's rubbish. According to verse 10, Paul thinks it's rubbish. Now certainly when it comes to receiving thanks, we each have to check our own attitude. If we're only doing something to get praise, that is a problem. But when it comes to giving praise, we are to compete in that. And obviously thanking people isn't all there is to it. Showing concern is another way to honor someone. Ask someone what they're struggling with, what they're happy about, what they're looking forward to. Now, they might not tell you, but they will notice you asked. They will realize they're not invisible. They'll realize they matter to the rest of the body. And if they do tell you something, listen, remember it, and ask them about it next time. Those are all little things. And it's little things that build up the body. We're all called to participate in this competition to show honor. And there are no limits to the amount of goals you can have. Remember the big picture here. Some things are evil. Genuine love hates those things. Other things are good. One of those things is building up the body. And genuine love loves to do that. But it's very easy to lose steam. Every single one of us has our own challenges in life. We all have our own joys. It's easy to forget about the challenges and joys of other people. So how do we keep our motivation for honoring others? Does it come from the loveliness of other Christians? Well, we can be lovely some of the time. Maybe you're lovely most of the time. But none of us are lovely all the time. If we are only devoted to someone when they're lovely, if we only honor people when they're honorable, we will have plenty of excuses not to bother. But Paul says our motivation is not to come from the loveliness of other people. He shows us how to keep our zeal for building up the body. Look at verse 11. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. This takes us right back to the start of the chapter. Building up the body is part of serving the Lord. It's part of our worship 
in response to God's mercy. And so ultimately, you and I are not called to serve one another because we are lovely. We love because God first loved us and bought us life through the ultimate sacrifice on the cross. The loveliness of our brothers and sisters or their lack of loveliness really is beside the point. We are driven by God's loveliness and his worthiness. Building the body is actually service to God. And that means another aspect of genuine love is keeping the faith. Verse 12. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. It's easy to see how this follows from verse 11. If we're, to keep in, if we're going to keep in mind that we are serving the Lord, we have to keep our minds on the Lord. Specifically, the hope we have in the Lord. That hope was outlined for us earlier in the letter. Paul called it the hope of the glory of God. That future hope is what enables us to be patient in affliction. We know that our present sufferings, as hellish as they can be sometimes, are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And so we keep the faith. We continue faithful in prayer because we know God is our only hope. We know we are utterly lost and hopeless without him. If you want to live a life of genuine love, if you want to make a difference, then keep the faith. If you remain joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, then you will build up the body. You will bless those around you. If you and I are going to live lives full of genuine love, we have to keep our relationship with God alive and healthy. We have to take time to renew our hope in God. We have to continue patiently trusting in God and faithfully bringing our joys and fears to God in prayer. Robert Murray McShane was a Scottish pastor one of the most helpful things he ever said was, my people's greatest need is my own personal holiness. And that's not just true of pastors. It's true of every church member. What our fellow members need most from each of us is for each of us to walk close to God. Do that and all the other stuff will happen as well. The kind of stuff Paul mentions in verses 13 to 16. Have a look again at those verses. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. 
Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. What these verses tell us is that genuine love demonstrates itself in blessing others indiscriminately. According to verse 13, keeping the faith has very practical results. It leads us to share with those in need. And commentators agree Paul is talking about material needs here. Food, clothing, and shelter. And in connection with that, Paul says, practice hospitality. Technically, hospitality is not something you give to your friends and family. We show hospitality to strangers. And as we do, they move from being a stranger to being our guest, to being our friend. So this is a call to look for someone you don't know and invite them to your home. It doesn't have to be for a meal. I'm sure coffee and biscuits count. It doesn't have to be a formal state dinner. And if you're not a talker, ask a talkative friend to come as well. The point is, genuine love, Paul tells us, will do more than saying, how are you? Genuine love will say, come around on Sunday afternoon and tell me how you are. And if we look at the book of Acts, that's the picture we get of the early church. They made space in their lives for one another. I heard about a group of Christians recently who started meeting in an area and they decided eventually to plant the church. So they approached a church planter to come and help them. And he said, I'll do it on one condition. Promise me that no visitor will ever go away from the church without a dinner invite. Why make such a big deal about hospitality? Because hospitality is an expression of genuine love. I realize some people don't want invitations. But let's commit to being a church that gives invitations. And let's not wait for others to do it. Let's assume Paul is talking to you when he says, practice hospitality. And he is talking to you if you're a member of Christ's body. So why not commit to have someone around the first week of every month and not the same person every time? In fact, let's not all pick the same week of the month. How about first, second, third, fourth? Hospitality really is a crucial part of showing love. Verse 14 says, bless those who persecute you. Paul will deal with that in detail a few verses on. 
what he's doing at this point is showing we're to be a blessing in all directions, indiscriminately, to those in need, to strangers, to persecutors, to those who are rejoicing, and to those who are mourning. The approach we take will vary in each case. As I said, we'll come back to persecutors. We know that's hard. It can also be surprisingly hard to rejoice with those who rejoice. It's easy to feel envy rising up in us. Well, they landed on their feet, didn't they? What about me? Why does stuff like that never come my way? Why did my kids not turn out like that? Why wasn't I healed the way she was? Paul says genuine love worships God by forgetting ourselves and rejoicing when others are blessed. It can also be hard to mourn with those who mourn. It's hard to sit down with someone give them our attention properly and enter into their world for a bit. Feel a bit of their sorrow for a while instead of just rushing to try and solve the problem for them. It takes effort to truly empathize with someone. And Paul says that's what genuine love does. Can you do that for everyone? No way. Four elders can't do it for everyone either. We are a body. We all have to play a part in this. So let's each of us commit to being alert and spiritually sensitive, to notice others and share in their highs and their lows. I think that's why Paul immediately adds in verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. The biggest barrier to harmony in the body is pride among the members of the body. It's thinking that others are too needy or too ignorant or maybe too posh or too intellectual for us to ever get to know. Romans 12 does not call us to bless everyone, but it does call us to bless indiscriminately, not avoiding those who are different or who look like a lot of work. Paul has given us lots of examples of what it means to cling to what is good. But now in verses 17 to 21, he takes a different approach. He picks up the question of those who do evil to us. So we're talking now about enemies. And Paul gives one principle 
for how we are to deal with enemies. He tells us genuine love is not overcome by evil, but overcomes evil with good. Verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Back in verse 2, Paul called us to resist the patterns of this world. And instead, he told us to be conformed to God's will. In verse 9, he called us to hate what is evil and cling to what is good. And so, when we get to verse 17 and read, be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone, we know it does not mean do whatever it takes to please non-Christians. There are plenty of things which are right in the eyes of this world, but which you and I should not be doing. But Paul's point is that simply there are things Christians and non-Christians agree are right. For example, we all agree that helping others is right. We agree that keeping your promises is right. We agree that being a nuisance to your neighbor is wrong. Those are some of the general rules agreed on by people of all faiths and no faith. And Paul says, even if someone doesn't keep those rules in the way they treat us, as Christians, we will stick to the rules. At the very least, a non-Christian watching us should agree that we're decent, neighborly people, that we're assets to our community. Worshipping God involves much more than being a decent person. But it is never less than being a decent person. My grandmother's doctor was known all over the town for two things. Professing to be an evangelical Christian and being a rude, cold-hearted so-and-so. Let's make sure we don't have that kind of reputation. Not with our neighbors, not at work, not with our teachers, not with our kids' teachers, and not with our unbelieving family. This world is going to disagree with us about many things, but let's force them to say all the same. He or she was a good neighbor. They were a good person to work for or work with. They did a good job for me. They treated me fairly. Now, of course, it's also true we can't make everyone live at peace with us. In verse 18, Paul acknowledges peace isn't something we can achieve all by ourselves. But we are to aim for peace with everyone, as far as it depends on us. And when we're wronged, 
We're to leave revenge with God. Verse 19. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Well, the obvious question is, what's going on with this call to heap burning coals on our enemy's head? It's a quotation from the book of Proverbs. What does it mean? Well, in the Bible, burning coals are sometimes associated with God's judgment. So does Paul mean that our kindness will increase the guilt of our enemies? And therefore, increase the judgment God will pour out on our enemies. Is that what it means? Well, that is possible, but it doesn't fit the context very well. The context is calling Christians not to seek revenge. So it's hard to believe Paul's saying, do good to your enemies so they'll suffer more in the future. So what is Paul telling us? Well, there's another interpretation that fits much better. There's evidence that in some cultures of the time, people who were repentant would carry a tray of coals on their head. The burning coals represented their pangs of remorse. You can't show people your pangs of remorse. But carrying the coals was a way of announcing publicly, I am ashamed of what I did. And that does seem to fit the context here. The point is, repaying someone's evil deed with good deeds may result in them being ashamed of what they've done and repenting of it. That's in line with a comment Paul made earlier in Romans. That God's kindness is intended to lead us to repentance. And of course, the kindness we show is not always going to lead people to repent. This is not a magic formula. But we can say this. Repaying someone's evil deed with another evil deed is most certainly not ever going to lead them to repent. So here is our calling when we have evil done to us. Leave the whole question of revenge with God. Now we don't have to pretend the evil wasn't really evil. We don't have to lie down And allow that person to keep on doing the evil. Sometimes we have to get out of the situation. Sometimes we have to involve the law. Paul will talk about the role of law and government next time. But when it comes to revenge, we are to take the situation to God, leave it in his hands, and then we are to repay the evil with good.
If evil is going to be overcome, that is how it will happen. It will not happen by you or me firing back another evil in retaliation. Paul says that's being overcome by evil. That's allowing this world to squeeze us into its pattern. When we respond to evil with evil, then evil has overpowered us. Is this easy for us? This genuine love that Paul has described? No way. In fact, this is not even doable. Not in our own power. But if you and I belong to Jesus Christ, we are not living life on our own power. Romans 8 told us those who belong to Christ have the Spirit of Christ living in us. And this Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. That's part of God's mercy to us. The life Romans 12 calls us to is beyond us. But it's not beyond the God who is with us. In his strength, we are able to hit what is evil and cling to what is good. We are able not only to resist evil, but even to overcome evil with good. And as we do, we are worshiping God in the way he calls us to worship him. We know that we need his help. So let's ask for his help together as we sing, O Lord, who came from realms above. And then let your kingdom come.